AGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible line. As always, it's great to be here. And if you're a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions concerning uh, a passage you're studying or challenge you're facing or an issue of ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on. All you need to do is call us locally, 525-1859 or toll free at 877-WAGP. 980, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. All right, very good. And uh, we do already have a number of questions that have come in, Pastor. So let's start with Jamie from Lillewap, Washington, who is wondering if you're familiar with the book by Kirk Youngblood, Free to Be Wise. It deals with discerning God's will and the many errors via mystical methods prevalent today. And if so, uh, they would appreciate your impressions. Well, uh, it's somewhat similar to a book that came out in the 1980s that actually wrote a book review on. It was called uh, Decision Making in the Will of God by Friesen. And um, it's similar in this respect. Friesen dealt with a number of issues that unfortunately make finding the will of God very mystical. Uh, there are Christians who, you know, say, well, I had this dream or this experience or whatever, and it almost, you know, seems to be some extra revelational thing. There are certainly some God-given non-negotiables in finding the will of God. The most important thing always to remember is that the will of God never contradicts the word of God. Uh, the question that really becomes the point of rub is, can God personally direct our steps? And Friesen was highly critical of that whole dimension. He would say, look, you know, um, do you want to go to Dallas Seminary or do you want to go to Reformed Theological Seminary? Do what you want. You know, God wants you to go to seminary. Pick one. It doesn't matter. Uh, Do you want to, uh, you know, and and I think what he was doing, he was going against some of the uh, thoughts, you know, oh, should I wear a red tie or should I wear a blue tie? Uh, should I buy Crest toothpaste or should I buy, you know, well, how far do you take, you know, finding the will of God? And Friesen was bringing out, look, there's some, you know, freedom of choice decisions that you can make. I think what he negated was the fact that God can lead in a personal way and direct our steps, even in the small things of life. And I think that was diminished. Um, so I, I think that's the balance that you have to keep. Whether, you know, Kurt Youngblood has actually accomplished that in his book, Free to Be Wise, that may be debatable. But the fact is, is he highlights some important things that uh, looking for some mystical experience rather than just going with some hardcore things that we know 
uh, one, the written word of God two, you know, the prevalence of wise counsel, uh, people who are wise, who can say, hey, here's the biblical principle that governs this particular situation and um, so on and so forth. So I, I think maybe he's achieved a little more balance than Friesen did in his book. Um, there's uh, no uh, full proof I way, way you can measure that on a scale, but I think overall it's a, it's a decent book and it's well written. But I appreciate that question from Washington State. Let's yeah. go to the next one. All right. We had a caller last week who said he was surprised to hear you say women should not be pastors, as this caller believes in equality between men and women. What does the Bible say about this? We'll get to that. Uh, in just a second, but we always give preference to live callers, and we have a live caller standing by now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Berge. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, I just recently uh, watched uh, one of your sermons from Genesis. Uh, it was titled uh, Tragedy of Tragedies, and in it you talked about uh, the horrific thing that happened to Dinah. And you said that, you know, whose fault was it? Obviously, it was Shechem's fault for humbling her. Uh, it was also Dinah's fault for being in somewhere where she shouldn't be. But ultimately, it was Jacob's fault for moving to Shechem and not going where God wanted him to go. Uh, you went on to talk about how um, when Shechem's father came and said, give us your daughter so, you know, his son could marry him, uh, the brothers spoke up and said that, you know, she can't marry someone who's uncircumcised. And you pointed out in the message that Jacob was silent. Uh, I know that it was Jacob's fault, but, and this is my first question, should he, even though he messed up, should he have, what, in that tradition, what could he or should he have done Instead of giving his daughter in marriage, could he have said, no, you violated her, your son should be held responsible? And also, how does this relate to what David did with Absalom? Instead of banishing him, you know, for rising up against him, should he have, you know, taken his life as the law stated? Or, or I'm just wondering, what do you think on these, these situations? Well, it's a good question, and uh, there's a number of governing principles. Uh, when a dad is the head of his home, there are certain responsibilities that he has in terms of spiritual leadership, and and that was certainly true with Jacob. And, you know, if you get out of the will of God, it can have an influence on your family. That's not to say that family members are not personally responsible. A parallel example might be Lot, for instance, you know, when Lot and Abraham were overlooking a piece of property, uh, Lot made, unfortunately, kind of a worldly decision that's highlighted in the scripture. And initially, of course, he was on the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah and eventually moved closer. And before you know it, he's in the city gates and he's one of the leaders. Uh, that was a foolish spiritual decision on his part because it impacted his family. Uh, his two daughters, who ended up getting him drunk and you know, sleeping with him and uh, bringing about, you know, two lineages of people that become Israel's enemies, they're responsible for the decision that they made and the sin that they committed. Uh, but, Lot, but Lot is also responsible for the decision that he made years ago to move his family 
into the realm of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we don't erase personal responsibility, uh, just like those boys who ended up, you know, committing really mass murder. Uh, God didn't approve of that. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it goes back to some decisions that, you know, were before them that, that their dad made. And that's why dads, it's very important for us to walk in the center of God's will, to obey God, to seek God, because, uh, we have, um, you know, an accountability that we will give. It's just like in the church, uh, the Bible says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they give an account of your soul. So there is that respect that leaders have the responsibility to lead. But with that, there are some very sobering uh, admonitions that go with that as those who will give an account. Uh, James, likewise, because one of the things that elders do is they teach. That's one of the principal jobs of an elder is he is to be sound in doctrine and apt to teach. And let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that you will incur a stricter judgment. That's not to say that people in the congregation are not responsible for decisions they make. Each one of us will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, Romans 14 teaches. So there's an individual personal judgment that each of us face. But there is also a judgment that leaders face, just like the head of a home will face as well. So those are the overall governing principles that... You know, I think we need to keep in mind. Great question, Rick. Let's go to the next one. And uh, if you'd like to call us, it's 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL, uh, TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. I think you were giving us another question that came in at the end of last uh, week, and we yes, didn't indeed. get to it. They uh, wanted to know if, um, uh, well, they were quite actually surprised that you were opposed to having uh, female pastors because of uh, the day and age in which we live, which is basic equality between men and women. And uh, this individual would like to know what the Bible says about this. Well, uh, in the question uh, that you you presented here to us, let me just say in no way do I do not believe that men and women are equal. And the way you uh, asked the question seemed to imply that from the application that I'm making that women shouldn't be pastors. So Obviously, I was not clear, so let me underscore that men and women are equal. There's no question about that. Uh, There are passages like Galatians 3.28, unfortunately, that are more often abused and taken out of context, but a verse like Galatians 3.28 affirms the equality of men and women. There, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul, in the context, is affirming the truth that both Jew and Gentile have the same spiritual status before God, that Jewish people are not in a higher spiritual realm than Gentile people are. And then he broadens that truth that he is unfolding in this chapter, and he applies it not just to Jews and Gentiles, but to slave and free, to female and male. Uh, We're all one in Christ Jesus. We all share the same spiritual heritage and the same spiritual blessing. That does not at all mean that we have the same spiritual role. And unfortunately, Galatians 3.28 is a favorite verse in liberal Protestantism today to advocate, for instance, even things like homosexual marriage, much less uh, women pastors. Um, when the Bible says there's neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, uh, you have to let the scripture interpret the scripture. The best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. 
And so there are a number of very clear pointed passages in the word of God that teach that while we are equal, we have different roles. Um, This is true in both the home and in the church and in the government. There are three institutions that God gave. Uh, First, he established the home. Uh, Then he established uh, or what we often call the institution of the family. Then he established government. And the third institution that he established was the church. And in each realm, there are differences in the role that men and women play Uh, in Israel's uh, uh, political realm. uh, Women could not be the king. Uh, God gave some real clear dictates. Does that mean that women were less of a person? Of course not. In the the church, uh, women cannot be pastors in the home. Uh, The husband is the head. Uh, God gives some very clear principles. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as this church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. So again, it's not an issue of equality, it's an issue of role. And these uh, this discussion is usually built around uh, two theological words that have come up in the last uh, 30 years have been coined as such. Uh, one word is called egalitarianism and the other is called complementarianism. Those are two important theological catchwords that aren't found in the Bible as such, but they um, one summarizes better than the other uh, the biblical position. Egalitarianism says that men and women are not only equal in their status before God, no one would argue with that. But therefore, they can take the same role before God. And so they would say, well, the husband is not really the head of the home. Well, how do they deal with a, a text like Ephesians? Well, they, they, they manipulate it. They twist the scripture. It's reaffirmed in Colossians and in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, so there are some clear dictates as to the role that men and women play. And I often tell dads, look, um, You know, it doesn't mean that you're the dictator, but you are the leader. And with leadership comes responsibility. It shouldn't be your wife who says, well, let's get up and go to church. Uh, You ought to be the one doing it. It shouldn't be the wife who always says, well, kids, why don't we pray together? Uh, She may do that, but it ought to be the man who's leading where they see in dad a real shepherd of the family, one who not only protects, but one who nurtures and cares. And And they see that over especially the husband wife relationship. If you have two heads, you have a monster. If you have no head, it's dead. And so God created in the smallest microcosm of life um, an illustration of where children learn to respect authority. Where do they learn to respect the police officer, the teacher in school, uh, the government official, the church official? They're supposed to learn it in the home. But if there's no leadership where someone is a leader and someone submits to that leadership, Uh, then you've lost that. Now, that's not to say that we don't submit to one another because the Bible teaches that as well, that we submit to one another in the Lord. Paul affirms that same truth in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians, uh, in the book of Colossians. So you can't dismiss that. Um, But there's specific roles that men and women play. The same is true in the church. So, for instance, in 1 Timothy Uh, One of the pastoral epistles, as well as in the book of Titus, he gives the qualifications for an elder. But just prior to that, he he speaks of role, the role of men and women, 
Um, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the child, through the bearing of children. If they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self restraint. So again, he's giving some specific roles here. There are some things, by the way, that only women can do in the church, just like there are some things that only men can do in the church. And here he's dealing with the office of teaching, which is a a pastoral office in the New Testament. The term pastor, elder, bishop, uh, it's used interchangeably, and it speaks of the same position. And a woman is not to exercise authority over a man Uh, in the In the role of teaching, he makes that very clear. And to remind us of this timeless truth, he takes it back to Adam, who was first created. The order of creation tells us that. And then he reminds us that it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Now, that doesn't lessen Adam's sin. Actually, Adam's sin is the greater sin. Because when he sinned, he was not deceived by the evil one. He sinned with his eyes wide open. But the woman, because she stepped out of her God-given role, opened herself up to deception when she ignored what God had specifically outlined uh, in Genesis 2, that the husband was going to be her leader and she was to be her, his complement or his, her, um, his helpmate. And she stepped out of that God-given role. She opened herself up to deception. And then God affirms women and he says, look, you have a very important role. Um, in the bearing of children, in the nurturing of children. That's no small thing. And a woman who becomes a pastor, if she's really a true pastor, then that what that means is she has to abandon her role as a mother. But, you know, that's easily accepted today because most women today, unfortunately, in America, have abandoned the home. And they are giving the care and the nurturing of children to someone else. They're not the principal nurturers of those children. They drop them off at daycare at 7 in the morning and, you know, pick them up at 5. And they're not the key influencer in that child's life anymore. And that's why the American family is falling apart. Now, people say, well, Pastor, that's old-fashioned. Well, maybe it is, but it's biblical. And if you want what the world has, and if you want the typical marriage and the typical family and the typical kind of children that are being raised in America, then do it the world's way, and I guarantee you'll get it. It's almost foolproof. But if you want to do it God's way, and God's a lot smarter than we are, and he's a lot wiser than, you know, the newscasters and the politicians and everyone else who has a a take on these issues, and want to call, you know, men who lead the home and, and women who raise the children is, you know, that's an antiquated model and it's, you know, suppressing women. And look, um, it is a high and holy role uh, that a mother has because she is influencing the leaders for the church. She can teach men, just little men, as my wife will often say. She can influence the next generation of leaders and what she does in that home is no small thing. It's like critically important. 
So God is very clear here in terms of the rationale. Now, there are groups like, you know, Cooperative Baptists, and we've got a couple of Cooperative Baptist churches on both sides of the river here in Beaufort County. And, uh, you know, they, they say women can be pastors. Um, I wouldn't want to be in a church like that. I wouldn't want to be in a church where there's role reversal. Uh, that feminizes little young men. And unfortunately, you know, homosexuality is entering into the church more and more. And people who have been raised up in the church, in evangelical churches, I'm not talking about liberal Protestant churches. I'm talking about evangelical churches. You've got some of these kids now that are wandering away into a lesbian slash homosexual lifestyle. And one of the things that is feeding that is role reversal. And uh, we need men who are real men to lead the church. Women play a critical role. They're the heart of the church and they bring a softness to the church and a, uh, a blessing that is just indescribable. But we need men to be the pastors and the leaders in the church. And then when he goes on and he describes leadership roles and the qualifications for both elders and deacons in first Timothy chapter three, uh, he uses repeatedly male qualifications Uh, He must be this. He must be that. If you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, then I'll tell you how she can be an elder or a pastor in the church. But she can't be that. These are male qualifications. So we have to dismiss this and say, well, this was just a problem in the church at Ephesus where Timothy was a pastor or this was antiquated. But we can't do that and be faithful to the word of God. We have to twist it because God's reasons are timeless. He goes all the way back to the order of creation and then how the fall took place. And then he goes into the qualifications for both elders and deacons in the church. Again, remember, there are some things that only women can do in the church. When uh, Paul writes to Titus and in Titus one, by the way, he gives the qualifications for elders or pastors in the church. And again, they're, they're male qualifications. But then he talks about different roles that people should play. You know, older men are to teach the younger men. Um, He speaks also that uh, the older women are to speak uh, to teach the younger women and so forth. Um, That's something that men are not to do. I am not to be in a discipleship relationship with a younger woman. Uh, There's several reasons for that. Number one, older women are more qualified than I would be. They understand some of the unique challenges that a woman faces in this life that I don't, uh, not to the same degree. And so there's wisdom that comes from older women in ministering to younger women. But two, it when this principle has been ignored, it opens the door for potential potential scandal in the church. Anyway, um, what I might suggest to this caller is to go back uh, to my uh, series on first Timothy and listen, I actually, you know, I answered that in about six minutes, but I answered the question that you asked in three hours. There's three one hour messages So go back and listen to uh, first Timothy chapter uh, two and the first message in first Timothy chapter three, and you'll um, get a complete answer. And I go through all the passages in the Bible that people use out of context oh, you know, what about Miriam and what about Deborah and what about this and what about that? And again, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. And we go back and we look at them in their historical grammatical context 
and we see that God is, is not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever on, on this particular issue. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor, for taking my call. Happy to. Thanks for calling. Okay, Pastor, um, I'm, I begin to study Hebrew, and I'm reading Genesis 1 in the, uh, in the Hebrew language. And I'm looking at Elohim with that, suff- that suffix him. And I think you mentioned before the I am and Shemayim is two or more and Im is three or more. I may have that wrong, but I know you've spoken to that a number of times. And, and what I'm, uh, I guess I have a twofold question from that area. I hear some people in an, I, I guess in, in an attempt to uh, knock down the Trinity say that that Elohim is a plurality of majesty and not necessarily speaking of the persons uh, of the one God nature. Uh, I wanted to see how you uh, understand that. And also, do you know when in world history that the plurality of majesty began to be used? I guess, was it used in Moses' time, if that makes any sense? Well, it's a good question. And, um, you know, it says here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's 11 words in the English text. It's eight in Hebrew. Barashit bara Elohim viet haaretz. And uh, God is very clear in the beginning. Barashit bara created God, Elohim, uh, the heavens and the earth. Uh, and so God's word uh, uses what's very interesting here, a plural noun with a singular verb. And so when you read the opening verse of the Bible in Hebrew, gra- grammatically, it doesn't make sense. Barashit, which is, by the way, the name of uh, the, the first book of the Bible in the Hebrew Bible. In our first uh, five books of the Bible, we have Greek names that we've taken from the Septuagint. The word Genesis means beginning, so it's a good, it's a good title. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's Barashit, which is the first word in the Bible in the beginning. The second word in the Bible is Bara, uh, and it's a it's a Hebrew word that means to create from nothing, and that's what God did. He created everything out of nothing in the beginning. Created, and the third word is Elohim, and it's in the plural form. And so even in the opening verse in the Bible, in kernel form, you have some insight into the doctrine of the Trinity. A little bit later in the same chapter, in verse 26, it says, um, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the heavens and the sea and over the birds. And so again, uh, God does not say, Let me make man in my image, but let us make man in our image. Again, very interestingly, you know, an affirmation of the Trinity. Now, did they understand the doctrine of the Trinity in a full-blown way in the Old Testament? I don't think so. I think their understanding was very limited. And so we often speak of progressive inspiration. And by that, we recognize that while God is not still in giving, you know, his word today, he progressively inspired it in the sense that he unfolded truth with time. And so even as you read the Old Testament, you have hints and clues throughout it of the doctrine of the Trinity. Even Isaiah the prophet, for instance, you know, you, you have to 
recognize in a verse like this, there's more than one member of the Godhead. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So Isaiah the prophet, for instance, predicts a baby is coming and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. So in this prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us, you see a member of the Godhead taking on human flesh. So God progressively unfolds the doctrine of the Trinity. It's in kernel form here, even in the opening verse of the Bible, but he progressively unfolds it. It's just like in Genesis three, um, when the fall of man takes place, God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We call this often the proto evangelium. That is Latin for the first gospel. This is really the first hint of the gospel in the Bible where God speaks of the woman's seed. That would blow a rabbi's mind because typically when you speak of seed, you speak of the seed in reference to the man. But God is speaking here of a supernatural birth that is going to take place and how the woman's seed uh, would ultimately be victorious over the evil one and over Satan. And of course uh, he is. Uh, He made a spectacle of uh, Satan at the cross, as Colossians 2.15 reminds us. So, yes, uh, you know, you find even in the opening chapters of the Bible, the gospel, and then God begins to unfold it. So you see in Genesis where God constructs the ark, and it's not by accident that it's one boat with three floors and one door, And you find typology in the New Testament looks back at Noah and his ark as a form of illustration of the gospel of what would take place. So you're not really reading into the text. So it's not accidental that there's one boat with three floors and there's one way of salvation. And when the door is shut, God seals the door. And when God uh, seals us in Christ with the Holy Spirit, he does so for the day of redemption. Uh, no one is going to be lost. Now, Noah and his family may have fallen down in the ark, but they couldn't fall out of the ark. And it's a picture, again, of our security in Christ. And, you know, Abraham up there on Mount Moriah, where he takes his son, his only son, Isaac, and he says to his servants, we are going to worship. And the Hebrew uh, plural pronoun is used twice, and we will return. Yet Abraham knows he's going to go up there and offer him as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering. But he believes that he can say with a sense of authority, we will return because God promised that not Ishmael, but Isaac was the son of promise. And through Isaac, Abraham's lineage would be like the sand on the seashore and the star in the heavens, which means that if he dies, God has to resurrect him from the dead. And so you see all the typology, you know, this man carrying wood on his back and he's going to Mount Moriah and Jesus is crucified on Mount Moriah and he carries wood across on his back and so forth and how there's a substitute that's provided. And Jesus is the substitute, just like a substitute was provided for Isaac in that he didn't ultimately die. God chose not to do that. And uh, he provided a ram and the ram is, uh, you know, has a, a crown of thorns around his head. He's caught in a thicket. And again, you see pictured all the way through Genesis, picture after picture of what is going to happen because God is unfolding it. And that's why when Jesus looks back on Abraham, he could say, Abraham saw my day. Where did he see it? In places like Genesis 22, he understood uh, what that pictured because Paul tells us in 
Galatians using an articular infinitive that he had the gospel preached to him. Um, Not just good news, but the good news preached to him. And he saw it illustrated. He saw a dress rehearsal, so to speak, of what was going to happen on Golgotha up there on Mount Moriah with his own son, Isaac. So um, it's a great question. Appreciate it. The phone calls are stacking up, so I better leave that. Let's go to the next one. Indeed, we do have another caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, good morning. I have a question for you. James 5, 4 mentions the Lord of Sabaoth. Yes. And I, I don't know anything about that. Could you help me? Sure. Um, I have a series, by the way, on the book of James that might be helpful to you. And so sometimes when people have a, a question, uh, they can see at searchofscriptures.org if I've preached uh, a message uh, in reference to uh, that book of the Bible. So if you went to searchofscriptures.org and you'd see a lot of the books that I've preached, I wish I could say I've preached every book of the Bible, hope to before the Lord comes, or actually I'll be happy if he comes today and I don't get to preach anymore. He won't need any preaching. But uh, before I die, if the Lord tarries, I hope to be able to preach all 66 books of the Bible. I have in a broad sense. I've done like New Testament surveys and things like that. Uh, but verse by verse, well, that takes a, a pastor a lifetime. John MacArthur did the New Testament, did a, it's done a couple of Old Testament books, but hasn't done uh, the whole Bible. So may, maybe my uh, goals are a little bit too lofty. I don't know. Um, but I have preached the book of James verse by verse by verse. And by the way, uh, I love James. Be- I like to call it Christianity in shoe leather. Uh, Because that's really what it is. James basically takes a lot of the principles that are found in the Sermon on the Mount and he unfolds them piece by piece by piece by piece by piece. And he he does just a magnificent job of it. And um, it, it really helps us to understand things that God would have us to do. Uh, as a believer and how we apply our Christianity. And of course, he, he's dealing with a problem in his day of people who say one thing and live another thing. And um, so it says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. Your rich have rotted and your garments have become moth eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire, it is uh, in the last days that you have stored up treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Uh, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and have led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Interestingly, um, uh, we've been doing a series on Wednesday night. I haven't, but my associate pastor has been on the names of God. And one of the names of God is Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And it speaks of God's power in God's watch care that God through all of his hosts and uh, he is the one who's over the armies of heaven, sees and witnesses all that takes place. And even his angels who give charge over his own servants. And he's speaking in this context of God's people who are being oppressed by rich people. And again, remember, there are those who say one thing and do another thing. And that's why James is affirming faith without works is dead. 
And I believe one of the reasons he raises this particular issue in the church is for the simple reason that you had people who were professing to be born again Christians, but really were not. Uh, They had a, a faith of profession, but not a faith that worked And faith without works is dead. And so when he calls him here, the Lord of hosts, he's uh, including certainly the host of heavens, but he's reminding us that God is the sovereign guard who commands the armies of heaven. And he is the one whom you will stand before someday as judge. And he's reminding these people they had better repent um, because uh, they, in the way they treat people, uh, with withholding their wages as they go on, you know, behold, the pay of the laborers have been withheld. God sees that. And that's the one that you will stand before. He is the one who you will give an account. And I think that's why what he's underscoring here and why he wants, he uses this particular name, Yehovah Sabaoth, Jehovah Sabbath. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Our next question comes to us from Port Charlotte, Florida. Barbara would like to, um, Actually, I've got a a call that just came in. Let's get to that one first. They would like to know if you have ever heard of Bible codes using equidistant letter sequencing. And if so, what do you think of this? Uh, I I think there are a lot of nonsense. Um, And there have been some good work that was done. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Norman Geisler, he wrote a little pamphlet on the Bible code mysteries, so to speak. Uh, does a good job showing it. One of my professors, too, Eugene Merrill, uh, who's now in his early 80s, considered probably the top Hebrew scholar in the world, or at least one of them, in the top 10. He also did some work and some writing in Bibliotheca Sacra, which is a theological journal uncovering the whole nonsense of the Bible code. Uh, you know, people try to look for patterns and, you know, a chiastic structure or this or that and and uh, and to try to make some point. That's not the way God communicates. And if you do that and you want to play that game, you know, it's it would be like having um, it'd be like having uh, a, a a page of English letters and then out of those English letters trying to create a pattern. Well, if you count over four and you go down three and count over four and go down three and count over four and go down three and you go over to the left four and down three and, and you're able to come up with some word and say, oh, here's a code. Well, you know, if you work long enough on that page of letters and you could come up with a pattern where you could form a word and say, well, here's the hidden message behind here. Well, that's just, you know. If you play around with it long enough, you could come up with vowels and consonants that would make words and maybe even a sentence. Uh, But that's not the way God wrote his word. So God said what he meant. He meant what he said, and he communicated in words and in letters, but he put them together into thoughts and into sentence structure. And so usually these people are looking for a hidden message in the Bible whatever methodology they are using. And there've been several that have been posited in the last 20 years and it makes for good fictional novels and other things. That's not how God communicated the word. And and one of the ways we know how to interpret the Bible and that we don't need to look for a hidden code is to see the way the Lord Jesus himself or even the prophets of old interfaced with one another. So sometimes you have prophets quoting prophets in the old Testament or more authoritatively in one sense is you have Christ himself interpreting the Old Testament for us. And he's not looking for any hidden meaning or any hidden code. He just says, it's written. It's written. Have you, have you not read the scriptures? And he just takes them back 
directly to the scriptures and the simple, plain thoughts that God said. And you see the apostles doing the same thing. So um, God gave us a hermeneutic. Hermeneutics is the study of interpretations. And God put within the Bible itself how to interpret the Bible when you see God himself interact. So like Moses in Exodus 20, when he gives the um, Decalogue, what we call the Ten Commandments, and he looks back at uh, the days of creation, how does he interpret it? Just plainly. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, so on and so forth. Why? He says, because in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. So he just, you know, grammatically, historically, literally interpreted what he himself had written in the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, Noah didn't believe in a, uh, I mean, Moses didn't believe in an extended creation or big gaps between the days or the days were, you know, millions of years long or anything like that. Um, he said plainly in six days, God created the heavens and the earth and the seventh day he rested. And he uses that as an application point why we should work only six days and that we need one day a week to rest. And so, um, within the Bible itself, you have principles for interpreting the Bible and the whole idea where someone comes to you and says, well, you know, I've got this hidden code or this secret, you know, number system or this secret lettering system. And, 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 and something new always comes down the pike about every 10, 15 years. And it sells a lot of books and, and, uh, makes for some dramatic interpretations. It's just wrong. And it's unfaithful to the word of God and the way in which we are to handle it. Anyway, I appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. email us at tbl at net. as has Barbara from Port Charlotte, Florida. She thanks you so much for your ministry, has a number of questions, but uh, wants these first. Uh, would like your opinion of the Calvary Chapel movement, Chuck Missler, and the documentary A Lamp in the Dark. Well, uh, A Lamp in the Dark was a documentary done a few years back on the history of the Bible. And it's a, it's a decent documentary. kind of goes through the whole uh, process of the Tyndale Bible and so forth. And um, some of the persecution that God's people faced uh, in the process of dealing with uh, the translation of the Bible and trying to put it out there because they were opposed by the uh, established church of their day, Roman Catholicism. Uh, to even make such a move and try to um, put the scripture in the language of the people where they could read it. Uh, so it's a good documentary. If I remember, it's a couple hours long. It's it's a long one. So it's. Um, I think sometimes when they do these, if you want to minister them in a broad way to the body of Christ, you neither either need to part them out into you know two or three parts and make them a series, or you make them within an hour. Uh, because these are the kinds of things that make for good Wednesday night study material in a lot of churches. And when it's, you know, two hours and whatever it was long, uh, it's a little too long. Uh, but again, for someone who wants to watch it in their home, you can probably find it online and just download it. Uh, the Calvary Chapel movement, um, it goes back to 
uh, Chuck Smith in the 1960s. He was in a church that was not uh, really preaching the gospel. And as a young man, he wanted to do some dramatic things and to try to reach the unchurched for Christ. And it wasn't too well received. And so he started a church called Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And after that, as he taught the Bible, other men were raised up out of that church and started other local churches. And now there's a whole movement of Calvary Chapel churches. Chuck Smith was a you know good, solid brother. He just died a year or so ago and preached right up until his 80s. And uh, I think he preached his last sermon like a week before he died, if I remember. Um, but a good, solid Bible preacher. There were some, maybe a few issues that Christians differed with him on. Uh, in how he allowed maybe some of the charismatic brethren to express themselves. Uh, He himself was not one who said, I spoke in tongues or anything. But if someone wanted to speak in tongues, he'd say, well, here's a room you can go do it in. Um, And so sometimes you have that flavor stronger than others in some Calvary chapels. Chuck Missler uh, was a businessman um, who actually wrote a lot of good material uh, he had a, 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 a key mentoring relationship in Josh McDowell when he was a young man. And uh, he's a good, solid brother, and um, he's still alive. He'd be in his 80s now, too, my guess, or late 70s, early 80s. But uh, he wrote a lot of good material on different Bible subjects. He, he was a businessman, but had a heart for the Scripture and very successful at what he did and had a number of different businesses over the years. And I think he's retired now and he has a, a ministry of sorts uh, to people and helping folks. But um, he wrote a lot of good, solid material that uh, God's people have been blessed by. So uh, just had a real heart to study the word of God. And and uh, Josh McDowell in a number of his books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict or More Evidence That Demands a Verdict would would use a lot of Chuck's material. So um, he had a, he had a real strong impact on Josh McDowell. All right, very good. Um, Abigail of Beaufort writes: Is it possible to have anywhere from one to eleven spiritual gifts? I remember you said on the sermon in Romans twelve verses six and seven that people cannot have twelve spiritual gifts. On the spiritual gifts test, it said I had four. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, what what I said in the Romans series is that no one has all the gifts. And that's one of the points that Paul highlights in not just that text of Scripture, but in passages, you know, like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where Paul compares the body of Christ to the human body that, you know, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of smell be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of sight be? You know, you need each part of the body for the body to be able to function. Even the unseemly members are just as important as those upfront members that you do see. Uh, you don't see the uh, the heart and the lungs and the kidneys and the appendix, but they all play a critical role. And so it is in the body of Christ. There are no um, uh, unimportant people. Every person has an important role. Now, if you take the course that I offer, I know you took the, the test online which if someone listening is interested in maybe possibly finding out what their spiritual gift is, is they go to search the scriptures.org and there's a 128 question exam that I wrote and the computer will score you. And it may give you, it may give you a hint as to what your spiritual gift could be. Now, when you take that test, you don't answer it in the way that you would like it to be. 
but in the way that it is. And if you take the course, you will discover that there are some gift pairs, so to speak, and that there are some gifts that mimic each other, but still are distinctly different. For instance, um, the gift of teaching and the gift of pastor teacher, which are two distinct gifts in the New Testament, have some commonality amongst the two. So if you took the uh, gift of uh, the spiritual gifts test, it might say that you scored high on teaching and scored high on pastor teacher. Now, if you had that pair and assuming you answered the questions accurately, um, you have one or the other. Probably it, you probably if you scored high on both, you'd have pastor teacher. But there are some common uh, traits. And by the way, the gift of pastor teacher is given to women. The office is not. And going back to the, one of the earlier questions in this hour, only men can serve in the office. But the, the gifts that God gives within the body of Christ are not restricted to a particular gender. So we need, for instance, women with the gift of pastor teacher to minister to women. Uh, That's an important role that they play. But both gifts would focus on the teaching and exposition of God's word. Uh, Someone who has the gift of teaching is happy to do that without the same emphasis on, on caring for the individuals and shepherding that flock of individuals. Uh, that someone with the gift of pastor teacher might have. So there's a lot of uh, parallels. For instance, the gift of giving and the gift of faith. Someone might score high on both of those. Why? Because there's some commonality between the two. People who have the gift of giving, who uh, are able to trust God with more than giving just 10% and maybe an, an occasional offering, but a much higher percentage of their income is similar to someone with the gift of faith and that they're able also to believe and trust God for great things. Both gifts have some commonality in them. And so it might be that someone could have both the gift of faith and the gift of giving, but usually uh, because there's some common traits in different gifts, when you uh, score high on several things, it doesn't mean you have all of them, but you probably have, you know, one of those, maybe two, uh, but, you know, um, usually a person has one or two spiritual gifts. Everyone has one. That's the assumption in First Peter 4, as each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So someday, one of the things when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ that we give an account for is how we used our spiritual gift. And you won't be able to say, well, you know, I didn't even know God gave spiritual gifts and spiritual gifts are given on the day of our conversion. And uh, it's a a birthday present, so to speak. It's part of your heritage when you become a Christian. Unfortunately, what happens to a lot of Christians is they don't grow in Christ. If Dr. Graham was right when he said some years back that 90 to 95 percent of the Christians in America have stayed baby Christians, then that would help to explain why some people don't even know what their spiritual gift is. When you hold a newborn baby, you don't know, well, is this child going to have the ability to sing? Will they be an athlete? Well, you know, what, what, what natural talents do, does this child have that, that, that God gave through the parents? You don't know until the child begins to grow and develop. Well, at your spiritual birth, God gave you a, at least one spiritual gift. And it's not until you begin to grow and mature in Christ that that spiritual gift begins to manifest itself and show itself in your life. And so some people who take the spiritual gifts course because they're so new in the Lord, they just haven't had enough time 
to grow and to really be able to definitively identify what their spiritual gift is. Uh, this is why we put a real emphasis on our discovery class, which, by the way, is online, not all of it, but a large portion of it, at least two thirds of it on it's entitled under the back to basic series, which kind of walk people through the fundamentals of the Christian faith that are essential to understand if we're ever to mature. Just like the gospel is essential to understand if you're ever going to believe. You can't believe in something you haven't heard. And in the Bible, you have to hear the gospel and understand it before you can believe it. Likewise, there's certain fundamental truths that you have to know if you're going to mature in Christ. And we cover that in the Back to Basics series. One person in our church who had been a Christian over 30 years, he said, I grew more in six months in the discovery class than I had in the prior 30 years attending church. Why? Because though he had been saved 30 years earlier, no one had ever really grounded him in the essentials of the Christian faith. And that's what that class does. And so as a person gets grounded, they begin to grow. And as they begin to grow, their gift begins to manifest itself. And so then when they take a spiritual gifts course, after they've been saved and growing for at least a year, then they begin to say, oh, yeah, I see how that's true of me. Or some people might say, well, you know, yeah, I didn't know that that's what my spiritual gift was called, but I can see that's what God's given me and I'm already using it. But it is helpful to know specifically what your gift is. And that assumption is given in passages like first Peter four, nine and 10. Uh, it's helpful to know what your gift is because it allows you to be a better steward of it. So if you know you have the gift of exhortation or the gift of mercy or the gift of hospitality or the gift of serving, then you're going to begin to ask yourself, how am I going to use this in the body of Christ first and foremost in the local church? Because that's where God calls us above all else to use our spiritual gift, not in a parachurch ministry, though it may find an expression there. You may be involved in some community Bible study or or the Gideons, and that's all wonderful, but that's no substitute ever for using your spiritual gift in the primary place that you will give an account for at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's the local church. So that's really important. If someone's interested in studying this subject further, uh, if you go to search the scriptures.org, the spiritual gifts course is there. The handouts are not, uh, and there's about 120 pages and handouts that are available that go with that course which you can also get by calling search the scriptures, visit the website and they'll give you more help on it. All right, let's go to the next question. I think maybe we're, well, we're about out of time, but let me just say the, uh, the Watoto African choir is coming very soon on Wednesday, February the 4th. And so, uh, you might want to consider being a part of that and, uh, going to community Bible church us for details. It's going to be a great event. We're out of time. As always, Rick, it's a pleasure to be here for the Bible line and to answer people's questions. If we didn't get to your question, well, there's God willing another week and another opportunity. If the Lord doesn't come back first, you can also go to search the scriptures.org and click on the icon, uh, ask Dr. Brogy a question and you can type in your question there and we get them that way here in the Bible line as well. All right. Thanks again. God bless you and have a great day as you walk with Christ. 